HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Diet Green. On Heritage Radio Network. I'm Max Sussman. And I'm Kate McCabe. Well, another awesome show coming up for you. We're speaking with Karen O'Donoghue, who's the founder of Happy Tummy Company. What is Happy Tummy Company? Um, Happy Tummy Company is a bakery, but it's not just any bakery. It's a very special bakery. Karen's been developing her recipe for her bread loaf for many, many years. One of the things that she focuses on is um, using bread to increase health and increase digestibility. So for a lot of people who are gluten sensitive or can't really handle normal wheat products, um, you know, it turns out some of the reasons for some of the people might just be that commercial wheat and commercially processed wheat is actually like not really that good for you. So um, her bread has 17 ingredients and everything's fermented and soaked this is like the bread nerd part coming out. Yeah, but, that's why um, you're the one speaking. Yeah. Yeah, so she uses uh, like teff flour and flaxseed and almond meal and all this stuff that is basically formulated to be super digestible and really good for your gut. Um, hence the name Magic Poo Bread, which we talk about a lot in the show. So... Uh, yeah, feel free to jump in here or whatever, but I thought it was really interesting to talk about a food business. It's very mission-driven, so obviously the health mission, but Karen's really um, passionate about things that we also care about, like uh, paying workers really well, environmental sustainability, responsible sourcing, and all that all that good stuff. So Yeah, and it's really interesting, too, because the loaf of Magic Poo Bread, you know, which we'll talk about in more detail in this episode, actually cost... It costs 25 euros per right. loaf, which is, um, you know, pretty expensive when you talk about bread. I'm not sure if I've actually spent 25 euros on bread before. I think even in, you know, some of the more upscale bakeries. And, and she also hasn't had an issue with people 
complaining about the price of the bread just because it is really, not only is it really delicious, but it really does have an impact on people's digestive health problems. Yeah. I mean, obviously we would like to live in a world where more people could afford good food, not just a world where all food is cheap. But uh, I, I liked how she, transparent she was about, you know, about that particular issue. You know, she's like, my bread costs 25 euros, but like most of like a biggest chunk of the of the of that cost is the actual ingredients that goes into it themselves. I think it was like 10 euros of, ing- of just the ingredients in each loaf of bread, which is a lot. That's like imagine going out and spending like, well, now it's like $11 to make one loaf of bread. You know, that's that's pretty much what she was talking about there. Well, you would have a lot of insight into that because... Well, I do it all the time, but... You're constant, you are constantly, <laughs> like, our house is inundated with these giant um, bags of different kinds of wheat berries and super organic whole wheat yeah. sacks of flour that I can't even pick up. <laughs> so if anyone knows anything about spending money on bread ingredients, <laughs> it's Mr. Max Sussman. So another thing that I thought was cool was just talking about how if you go on Instagram and look online there's like people are just taking pictures of bread all the time and there's this particular kind of bread that i think is sort of like presented as the um archetypal loaf of bread that you should be going for when you're baking and it looks very distinctive a lot it's very it got a lot of holes it's called a very open crumb it's it's fluffy it's airy it's almost like ethereal like how do you get so much billowy rise to come out of your bread and it's like she was pretty harsh on that whole thing in a way that i really appreciated yeah because you know she's like okay great it looks like whatever it looks cool but it's not good for your body necessarily and she's just coming at it from like a totally different a totally different place and i think that's such a very refreshing i'm not saying like like it's all bad or whatever but it is a very refreshing perspective to hear somebody be like yeah i'm not into that i'm doing my own thing and here's what it is Right. And, and, you know, if there's one thing that you can't do with Instagram or you can't tell with Instagram is how any of that bread actually tastes. So who cares if it has, you know, a bunch of of holes in it and it looks really cool if it just tastes like cardboard when you bite into it. And yeah, is it going to make you have a magic poo or not? Like, let's cut. Well, you know, we have I was actually about to uh, to talk about my own magic poos. I myself have noticed when you make sourdough at home, that's regular. And when you when you pack it with, you know, when you mill your own grains and you make it as whole wheat as possible, it makes me poo. All right. Well, we had a great chat with Karen O'Donoghue and we're excited to share it with you. So stick around. Thanks for coming on the show, Karen. It's really great to uh, be talking to you today. Yeah, you guys too. Thanks. We are super excited to talk to you about your bread and everything that everything that goes along with bread. Okay, awesome. Could you start by telling us a little bit about your background and what made you decide to open up the Happy Tummy Company in London? Um, so I guess for me, um, as an Irish person, there is like a huge bread culture here, I guess. Uh, number one, I guess, just in terms of ease. Uh, and then number two, I think in cold countries, bread is super comforting. Um, and so I grew up uh, eating a lot of bread and really, really loving bread and, and feeling good on it uh, to a certain extent. Um, and when I traveled, the first place I would always go to is a bakery. And so for me, 
bakeries are kind of this they offer a culture in which you can connect connect to another culture um and i guess maybe there's something in being raised in a very catholic country um and bread of life being a thing that gets repeated every sunday uh subconsciously kind of filtering into my approach to healing and medicine and so when i was in london and and i kind of finally realized okay what i'm suffering from here is a huge amount of inflammatory issues um and the, one of the main foods i'm eating is bread that that must have a whole lot to do with it um and so i just kind of went about making the bread that i was eating a lot more nourishing and and even before that digestible because most of the foods that people are eating aren't even digestible um and uh, so i guess yeah it was very much for me it was like there was a desperate need for a bread that was going to number one nourish me number two manage symptoms that i was handling at the time and then number three kind of extend life in a very natural way without having to depend on over the counter medicine or indeed go down a medical route for an anything more serious um and so at the time this is maybe 2014 in london and there was loads of sourdough bakeries and sourdough was kind of like the the sexy word in the food industry as a whole i would say um uh, but they were all using a huge amount of roller milled flour or white flour um and still to this day are um and i guess i was unenthusiastic about that approach to bread making and so kind of went about bringing a bread to the market that didn't didn't exist before and and actually still to this day doesn't exist in in the uk or ireland i'm i i i love bread and i love baking bread as well what made you i know i know a lot of people when they start to have problems with digesting gluten um just decide that they can't really eat bread anymore like what do you think made you go down this road of try try to devise a bread and and make something that you could digest and that would make you feel good what what kind of pushed you to, in that direction of just kind of sticking with it and continuing to want to be making bread um i i think because no other food brings me the same amount of pleasure that bread does um apart from pasta so i think I, I, don't, I, I think for me, the chemical release in my body and just the feeling I get from eating carbohydrates is so satisfying and it's so indulgent. Um, and for me, I, I, I think life, life is very hard and one needs those moments that can revive you and reignite you. And for me, complex carbohydrates are a huge part of that. Um, and we're now seeing that that to be scientifically proven. But but regardless of that, um, I guess when I saw what my other options were to eating bread, you know, like grain bowls and, and doing all this sort of stuff, it just for my life, which was time poor during working weeks, it didn't seem feasible to me to be able to prepare food three times a day in a way that was going to nourish me over having a loaf of bread there that I just needed to spread something on and put something else on top and get the same amount of nourishment. So for me, it was very much a, okay, my, my options Monday through to Friday are limited if I need to like really take this seriously in a meaningful way and prepare everything from fresh every day. Um, it just wasn't, it just didn't seem feasible. And so creating a bread 
that was like the perfect mathematical equation based on how your gut bacteria likes to eat uh, was kind of the the guiding light and was what was what inspired me to keep going because I mean ultimately for me like my mom had passed away of cancer when I was young like there was mental health issues in the family and a whole host of things that obviously are completely stimulated um by by the diet that we eat I, I just I was so adamant around not going down that road and I was so adamant about like not getting cancer not having to go th- through treatments when I was young that that was kind of the thing that kept me going interestingly to your point Max on the gluten-free stuff I think back then in 2013 I also was like oh you know maybe I've got gluten intolerance but no what it was was I'm intolerant to commercial wheat like like everyone is um but I did come off gluten for a period of time because in doing so it meant I was pursuing a diet that was high in nuts seeds and grains like teff which fundamentally were much more nourishing anyway um and so it wasn't an unhealthy um fad-based approach to it it was one that actually was quite functional and mathematical and scientific um and also as a person I wouldn't naturally get a lot of seeds and nuts into my diet on a daily basis if I hadn't included them in the bread so again the bread is just like a perfect conduit through which I'm getting ingredients in that I otherwise wouldn't now, you call your signature bread magic poo bread. I'm wondering, is that a name that you came up with or is that based on um, some of the feedback that you got from your customers? Yeah, that was completely customer driven back in oh, the day. Yeah. yeah, that was, that was, uh, we had emails from people being like, I'm doing model poo citizens. This is magic poo bread. You're a poo magician. I mean, the poo chat was off the Richter scale uh, back in the day. It's kind of quite in day now, but uh, I must say I do get a huge amount of joy from people walking in off the streets in Westport saying, can I have a loaf of the magic poo bread? And because we're very limited in terms of what we can say marketing wise, uh, having those things customer driven is incredible. And it's a way of us educating without not being illegal. Yeah. I mean, I know that when I bake bread at home, there's a, a difference in the uh, magical qualities yeah. I use when what depending on what I use uh, a lot of whole grains or oh, yeah, whether I'm yeah. trying to you know make one that looks good for a picture so I I definitely believe it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. How did you develop the recipe for your bread? Can you talk a little bit about that about that process and how you how you discovered teff? Yeah. So, I guess firstly anyway, um I was adamant around making bread medicine and then Secondly, I was adamant around, number one, discovering the right process for me and my issues. Um, and number two, discovering the right ingredients. And then number three, making it all sustainable. So um, I would say back then I was reading on average seven science papers a day. And the benefit of doing that was it became very obvious to me what was uh, what was this, this kind of the holy grail of of how our gut bacteria like to eat. And so all these scientists were kind of doing similar research, but no one was kind of maybe piecing it together because I guess they were all like just introverted in their labs, kind of down 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 a rabbit hole really with it all. And I guess as someone who had this desperate need for a food-based solution, um, and also I'd be quite mathematical and scientific anyway, um, it was easy for me to piece it all together. And in so doing, what I did was I was like, okay, so I need 
this part's insoluble fiber to this part's prebiotic to this part soluble to this part's dietary protein to this part's minerals and vitamins um and i need to find the right ingredients that will give me those ratios um and then on top of that uh it was about finding the right process is that going to be a sprout a ferment or a soak to again adhere to this mathematical equation because um, if I were to ferment, for example, that would change the, the B-complex vitamin number and it would change the prebiotic fiber number because through fermentation, you increase those numbers by 30%. Soaking doesn't do the same thing. Um, and so in the end, because I was working with grains that were naturally free of gluten, soaking made most sense. Um, and uh, then there was a period of time that made more sense as well. So I was playing around with different periods of time from anything from a full week to two days. Um, and again, there was a, a pivotal point there where I was like, OK, if I do it for this number of days, that's when I get the best taste and that's when I get the best bacteria and things like that. So uh, the research period was 18 months and it was very much a journey of science meets gut instinct. Um, and then post that period, uh, testing it on a hundred people that had IBS, but I think I'm pretty strong on, you know, life is about being able to tweak behavior and habit for a better life. Um, and you've got trauma and all that kind of stuff based within that. Um, and you will never change behavior or habit by handing someone a healthy food that's going to be good for them but you might change behavior by handing someone something that feels incredibly indulgent um, and almost cake-like. And so this, this product that's become our signature product uh, now, most people are like, I can't believe it tastes this good and it has the effects it has. Um, and so I'm, I'm like, as a bakery, I would say we're, we're first and foremost passionate about using the whole grain, but secondly, taste has to be aligned with that every step of the way otherwise yeah there's no point in terms of the ingredients and sourcing those again that was just a lot of research um, and uh, I used to travel quite a bit I don't anymore but back then I was going to kind of islands and mountain ranges where and, and places like Africa and India where there were tribes that were still harvesting very old seed and grass varieties. And so I guess I knew it was very possible to, to source uh, regenerative heritage, ancient grain, seeds and nuts. Um, and it was just about, yeah, sourcing the best I could. Um, and so uh, one particular trip to Ethiopia was quite pivotal um, in that um, and then Teth became central really to that signature product um, and is now an ingredient I couldn't live without. And it's one that I think is particularly important for female health, but also males for endurance levels and, and, and getting, getting more accessible protein into their bodies and things like that. But, but I would say out of, out of that time spent, uh, Teth, which is the seed of love grass, really did come to me as like a real gift, um, a real gift. So is the bread, is it mostly teff flour or is it a mix of different? Yeah, so it's it's a mix of things. There's about 17 ingredients in that loaf. Teff is the main ingredient in that loaf. And then there are seeds, there are nuts, there are other grains uh, that are also naturally gluten-free. And then fats and spices and oils and local harvested sea salt. So it's it's a real perfect concoction of stuff for anyone who's trying to manage inflammation. 
or anyone that actually just wants to feed themselves or guts feed of choice. So, you know, there's a lot of, it's been a trend for many, many years at this point, but now I think more than ever, you see these loaves of bread on Instagram that are like, you know, they're fluffy. They're like, have these big holes of, of air, these pockets of fermentation. Do you think that, um, like that the rise in Instagrammable bread has contributed in some way to what people's expectations are for bread? And like, how do you fit into that? Yeah, I think people, number one, people think all sourdough is equal and that sourdough equates to health. Um, And number two, yeah, to your point, this expectation that you get a really well risen loaf that is sourdough well, surely, surely it's healthy. So um, I've spoken to journalists in Ireland about this, and I think their opinion from interviewing many bakers is that there's maybe there's maybe like a lot of ego involved in, in, in presenting bread in that format and that it, it's one of um, it's kind of one of design as opposed to nourishment. I think for me personally, I split the world into people who choose to nourish and choose to feed. And those sourdoughs for me are very much just choosing to feed, um, you know, and make some money off something that you, you enjoy doing or something that like bolsters your ego. Obviously off the back of that, a large portion of my time is spent educating people. Um, and so though we're a bakery, I actually describe ourselves as like a schoolhouse because I think that's what we spend most of our time doing. I, I think when I was younger, like when I started out doing this, I was in my twenties and I was very introvert. I was like very shy about asking for money for anything. And so I really struggled back then uh, with re-educating people. But I think because I'm pretty uh, straightforward and scientific and mathematical, for me, there's kind of no other way. Like there's no other way of eating. There's no other approach. I see those and I understand those for what they are. But fundamentally for me, if you want to stay alive and healthy and you want to support Mother Earth, then the only approach is one that's whole grain. And the only approach is to eat in this way, because through eating bread like this, you number one, take pressure off community systems like hospitals and and things like that. And number two, you take pressure off yourself and you bolster your mental health, your nervous system, and therefore you bolster the community you're in, whether that be with family, friends, your, your, your town. And for me, I've really seen the benefits of eating in this whole way that's good for the plant and good for you um, because you make better decisions and you're better to be around. Whereas when you're eating white sourdough, you know, you're, you're spiking your insulin levels. You don't have clarity of mind. You're causing inflammation. You're not feeding your gut. It's food of choice. Um, and you know, you, you spiral and you go up and down throughout the day and, and then you form new habits, which aren't necessarily healthy. And so for example, when I go to Dublin to visit my sister and I go to a new restaurant and they're like, Oh, we've got this new sourdough on the menu. And I'm really excited about trying it. And they serve it and they serve it with rapeseed oil. And like, I have a little bite or whatever, And 20 minutes later, like I'm all over the place. My mental health's gone. I feel anxious. I'm getting heart palpitations. You know, I'm so sensitive to the food I eat and I've always been, and and not in a weird way, just as in I really know my body and I have a relationship with it and a dialogue with it. Um, And so there was a time where 
like I felt like a raging fiber activist and I really hated those white sourdoughs like they were a real trigger for me but now I'm like oh look feck it it exists and fine whatever but but does it annoy me that food like that exists yes is it an element of capitalism yes um and I think is it hard to create businesses that that kind of are addressing the the points that those people are are ignoring yes but it kind of comes back to a very simple story which is this uh so back in the day when bakers were making sourdough by hand and they were making maybe 100 kilos of sourdough in a big trough uh, and they were sweating and they weren't getting much money for their for their efforts uh there was one day where the miller sent them flour that had very little bran in it and the sourdough that these bakers made that day rose threefold. And so that day they were able to charge three times the amount for their bread. And they walked home with a really good wage that day. And so they went back to the miller and they said, please continue to make the flour in that way, because now we're earning way more money. Um, and this, this started to happen. And then everyone changed and seeds were adopted, et cetera, et cetera. But basically it all comes down to like bakers not being valued and the people that are growing, milling and baking your food not being valued in the chain of well-being and health. And unfortunately, we're just living that out again. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to re-educate people around, number one, the value of bread and number one, the value that we play in that. So I'm trying to tell people like my bakers also deserve to afford a mortgage and all that kind of stuff. You know, you don't need, you shouldn't have to choose to be a lawyer to contribute to society and be able to buy things that you need um, when actually what you want to be is a baker. Um, so for me, there's a big social thing at play there as well. Um, and ultimately, you know, those white sourdoughs, they have much better margins than the bread that we're making. Yeah, I feel like that's a, a natural transition to talking about the price of food and the price of bread and the price of your bread. How did you decide what you were going to charge for your bread and how does the, how do, how do your suppliers fit into that? What are some thoughts you had on that part of your business? Uh, so I remember before I started the bakery, so in 2013, 2014, I was giving talks at these members clubs in London. And at the time I was considering training to be a dietitian because I thought the bread I'm making is completely unaffordable and inaccessible. Um, and I won't be able to make a business with this. No one will buy bread for 20 pounds a loaf. There might have been one article in the Telegraph that year. And it was like Baker in Northumberland or something is charging 10 pounds for a loaf of bread. And everyone was outraged. So I was like, I don't want to be a newspaper article. I don't have I don't have the stamina for that. But uh, I gave this talk. I brought loads of loaves of bread. And I said to maybe 200 people that day, I said, you know, here it is. And, and one day I'm going to create a school and I'm going to teach you how to make this. And they were all like gobsmacked. They were like, number one, we've never felt so good at, after eating a slice of bread in our whole entire lives. Number two, we don't want to make bread because back then there wasn't this uh, draw towards making people your own food. And so people were like, you just, you got to make this bread for us and, and we'll, we'll buy it. And I was like, well, it'll be 20 pounds a loaf. And they were like, yeah, fine, no problem. Like this is worth 20 pounds to me. This is worth not buying laxatives. This is worth like having the best poo of my life, you know, like, so people were just enthused about the idea that they could take ownership over their health. And I, I guess at the time, 20 pounds was a figure that I just threw out because I kind of knew with a bit of profit and stuff that that's how much it would be. 
Um, actually, I made no money at all. And so I was like, okay, this is a terrible business model. But I guess it wasn't a business. It was a vocation. And it was very quickly becoming more and more of a vocation and a social movement than anything else. Uh, and so today in Ireland, uh, the loaf costs 25 euro. Um, and the ingredients alone per loaf uh, are about 10 euro. And then on top of that, there's like the packaging and then obviously paying my team and, you know, the cost of just like running the building that we're in. And so, you know, we break even or we're loss making. Um, and, and that's the reality we're in. I could go out and raise a bunch of money from investors um, and go down that road, but I don't want to. And so I think for me, it's best to live within the reality of what it costs to produce food of this quality. And that means not making money. Um, it means living a very simple life. And, uh, and I'm very content with that. So that's how we've come up with the costs. The costs are basically like everything that goes into the bread, we hope is paid for on a weekly basis. And then from there, you know, we do things like we do online courses and stuff that like kind of can make us money on the side or whatever. But um, this isn't like a thought out this isn't like a thought out business. It's, it's very much passion led. And I think if I were to charge any less than 25 euro a loaf, we wouldn't exist. So that's kind of the price point at which we're able to exist and anything lower, we go out of business. We're going to take a quick break here and hear a little word from the sponsors of the Heritage Radio Network. Stick around. I'm Chaba Perivan co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Do you feel any, I mean, I know you kind of did address this, that you could take investment and maybe get some different equipment and grow a little bit. Obviously what you're doing is really important and it reaches a lot of people and you're able to employ people and support the millers and the growers who are doing things the right way. Do you ever feel pressure or like that you might want to grow so you could do any of that more? Or do you feel like there's trade-offs there that you're uncomfortable with? I think, uh, so for example, uh, we 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 were able to make an investment in a bigger oven, a bigger mixer, things like that over the past few months um, through not taking on any money, which which is great. And so for me, because we've been able to do that, that's kind of the way I want to continue to grow. I think 
just I used to be married to an investor and just seeing that whole world was just atrocious. So uh, I think I want to avoid working with investors as much as possible. And interestingly, on our school days, there's always at least one investor in the room that comes to those. And so I think for me, the world of investment is just so unreal and so chaotic and has prevented people from appreciating the value of food and the role it plays in their lives. And it prevents people from understanding that actually we need to spend more on the lives we're living and less on holidays and cars and clothes. And, you know, so I think if I were to take on investment for this business, I literally just contribute to the problem I'm trying to resolve. And and so for me, investment is very much a vacuum in which you can do interesting things, but to your point, you make sacrifices. And, And I've never been comfortable doing that. So though it's going to be a slow journey, I think we have to commit to the one that we've started. And so my way of making what we do more accessible is through education. So the school days, offering people the flour, you know, doing recipes for people. So people have access points and entry points into making food in the way that we believe is best. And then, for example, we've got like a product that you can buy for five euro, for 10 euro, for 50. So there's different price points there now. And so that's been, I guess, my way of making what we do more accessible. Um, and the the cheapest product that we sell is actually probably the most effective product that we sell now. And so that was, I suppose, something I was passionate about getting to in the past 12 months. Um, but I was recently at the UK Grain Lab and, and this topic was was big at it because it was a mix of like farmers who believe we need to like go full hog, like we need to change the system altogether. And then it was a mix of people like me who've been doing this for a long time and we're very aware of how long it takes to cause change. And I think ultimately anyone who's going to go at this full hog is going to make sacrifices. For example, that could be paying staff like quite a low wage. And I think for me, that's a, that's another point of tension. Like in the food world, inevitably, that's the biggest sacrifice that any company is making. They're just they're paying minimum wage. And I, I don't know. I, I don't think that's fair. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, that's happening all over the world right now. And I, I see a lot of conversations around that in in Ireland, especially because of the hospitality and the tourism industry. People are, seems like a lot of restaurants are really scrambling to get employees. And I, I think I read recently that Fulcher Ireland has a program to try to entice retirees to become involved in the hospitality um, industry to fill some of those roles. I'm wondering, do you have any trouble recruiting people to work at your store or have you not really had to deal with that? I personally haven't had trouble, but I think our working conditions and our pay is like well above average. Um, so I think it's it's different as well. You know, we're, we're not doing evenings, we're not doing nights. Like I, I, I think the work we do lends itself better to having a more fulfilling lifestyle. I am very passionate about my team living good and healthy lives. And I think they, they know, you know, they know that they understand that. I also think, interestingly, I think there is people gravitating more towards female run companies now. So definitely within the baking space, uh, there's been a lot of chat 
and a movement from people working for men to going to working for women because they just prefer those more feminine spaces. Interestingly, with the bringing retirees out of retirement into the service industry, like I actually, I hadn't read that, but I think that would be no bad thing because it would just, I, I think it would bring a softness and maybe a more down-to-earthness to the space, to the industry at large. So a big thing for me when I moved back to Ireland, creating the space I've created was I don't want it to be cool. I want it to be really approachable and accessible for everyone. So like we've got customers like in their 90s and we've got customers that are teenagers and, and everything in between, you know. Uh, and, and so I think, yeah, like uh, as an industry, it has been fueled by people like coming from abroad and young people um, just holding up the system that wasn't working. And the fact that that's getting highlighted now is shit on those businesses, but it, it it's no bad thing. And I think quickly people in, in Ireland and over the world are beginning to understand I, I should be appreciating my waiter a lot more. I should be appreciating my baker a lot more, et cetera, et cetera. But I think ultimately the only way of getting people into this industry is by paying better wages and offering better working conditions. And that's something that I've been like strong on from the start, but, but, but a lot of people haven't because most people go into business to make money. I I think there's something really special about going into an establishment and seeing an intergenerational staff there, provided that the, the people that are, you know, of retirement age are are there by choice and not, you know, because they have to continue to work to support themselves. But that's something that that makes me feel good. Also, you know, a lot of people, um, they try to like excuse away low wages in the food and hospitality industry by saying stuff like, oh, well, that's just, you know, that's a, that's a young person's job. It's just their first job. And, you know, they'll move on and they'll make more at their next job. And that is really just um, like a terrible <laughs> way to try to rationalize paying, paying poor wages. And so, you know, why should those jobs pay poorly? And why should young people have to take jobs that don't pay well? You know, none of it really yeah. makes sense if you think about it. Yeah, totally. But I think ultimately, like the price of food will increase dramatically to be able to pay. You know, if you're working in service, you it, it, it's just, it, it's kind of barbaric right now, like what people are paid. And there is no way of them being paid any better unless the price of things increase significantly, at which point then as a customer, you're making a decision to maybe go out once a month or once a week or whatever you're able to afford. But I think that's why I'm, I'm saying that everything needs to be looked at on a whole and like, how much do you value going out? So I haven't gone out for dinner in maybe a year. And I went out for dinner last weekend with my brother in Ballycotton in Cork to cut. And we had a beautiful evening. We were there for like four and a half hours. It was absolutely stunning. We probably spent 260 euro or something, but like I will hold on to that memory now for a long time. And I was so happy to like spend that money on good people and good food that night because I'm not doing it every week. And I don't have this, like one time a friend of mine <laughs> said that she used to go to this place for like toast and tea every morning for breakfast. And then she stopped going because the price increased and she was like outraged at the price increasing. And I was like, mate, like the price, I, I, I was trying to say to her, like you were, you were getting a bargain there. And like, 
why why do you have a right to have breakfast out every morning right you know like why why should the food industry hold up that right for you right no it's all it's it really i mean once you kind of go down that that rabbit hole you start to think about but to me, I start to think about why are there so many restaurants in the first place? Right. Like there are other things that we, that people could be doing to better uh-huh. society to contribute. And rather than just, you know, being at the whim of someone who needs a coffee and a tea and every morning. And so I just, I do think like, I agree with you personally in terms of recognizing that food would need to cost more, but then also going to the next step, which would be, well, then there might not be as many places to get food. And then what then then what then it just kind of it begs the question of just thinking about the whole way that our society is organized and and ways that we could do better <laughs> in a lot yeah. in a lot of different areas you know yeah absolutely can i ask you why did you decide to leave london and why did you choose westport and then i'm wondering if you what your reception was like from the locals when you were when you set up your business there so i left london because I was on my way to give a talk around bank one day and I passed a cafe that said salad in 60 seconds or less. And I just lost it. I was like, I can't live in a city that promises salad in 60 seconds or less. And so I, at that point, that was 2018. And at that point we really were fundamentally an educational brand that was selling bread. So we're selling hundreds and hundreds of loaves of bread per week, but I was on the road giving lots of talks all the time. And I guess I, for for four or five years, I was like, just like up early, just making bread. And you kind of, you feel a little bit ineffective after a while. And so I thought my time would be better spent teaching people. And I was also really passionate about baking bread on fire and just being in the outdoors and, and, and through preparing food outside that maybe people get a better connection with where their food comes from. And so I moved to the countryside of East Sussex and built an outdoor bakery school there, um, which was great. It was really, really great fun. And I absolutely adored teaching people outside. But COVID had obviously hit and uh, Brexit had hit and stuff. And I don't know, just as an Irish person living in the countryside of Britain throughout that time, it, it, it wasn't feeling comfortable anymore. And I also I think if you work in the food industry you've got a very good insight into how the world is working and what's happening with regards to the future and I think for me I just had a significant feeling of we all need to be living in places where we're truly happy because we're not going to be able to travel as much anymore traveling is not going to feel as good anymore because you know that you're you're contributing to like greenhouse gases and whatever else so I think I was just like okay I I need to I need to move I need to set myself up somewhere that I'm going to be very content in for the rest of my life and that was between Mallorca in 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 Spain uh or or coming back to Ireland and I had a dog at the time called Biggie Smalls um and uh renting in Ireland with an animal is incredibly difficult so when I went on to Daft, I was like, okay, house with dog. And basically two houses came up, one in Mayo and one somewhere else. So I picked the one in Mayo, but it was also, I mean, it was, it was not thought through. It was total gut instinct, but I guess this brand was stimulated by my mom's journey with cancer. 
And she and my father had their first kind of camping date on Ackill Island off the coast of Mayo when they were 16. And just before my mom passed away, she spent time with a healer on Ackill Island. And so I guess I was just really drawn here as a, a place of healing. And then when I got here, within three weeks, I'd found the space and then soon after kind of built up a beautiful community of people here. And so it's it's been probably the closest to home I've ever felt in my life. But the, the response to what we do here, I initially thought that it would just be a school because I thought Irish people wouldn't pay 25 euro on a loaf of bread. Um, but in actual fact, it's completely flipped. People are very happy to spend 25 euro on a loaf of bread here. And the school thing has become second. But the response has been incredible. But I think that's because Irish people are very good at maths and science. They're taught very well in their school system here. And so I think people can just get around those kind of companies that are based on common sense. And in terms of our community of people, like we have people of all income ranges as customers. And everyone, I think, just gets that food is medicine here and that the more better food they eat, the less dependent they're on pharmaceutical drugs. So, yeah, it's been it's been interesting. And I think as well here, because I try to educate with humor and for me, like laughter and just having fun are so fundamental to this whole reason we're here. I think maybe the way I speak about bread and the branding is just a bit more tongue in cheek and I think Irish people fundamentally just love to joke their way through life so that's also maybe well why it's kind of just settled in quite comfortably here. I wanted to ask more about the the science of it working. I don't know a lot about this topic but I believe that each person's gut flora is somewhat different and I'm wondering like how that how it works that you know that this that the loaf of bread was developed to improve everyone's situation, you know, because people are coming from different places. And I'm also personally really interested in, in fermentation and the science of fermentation. So I wanted to know if you could talk about if that, if the fermentation specifically kind of played into that. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, so we're all different, but our gut bacteria's food of choice is all the same. So, uh, what your microbiome then does when it's been stimulated and fed is, is of course different, but essentially uh, we all have good gut bacteria and our gut bacteria's food of choice is 66% dietary fiber to 33% dietary protein. And within that split, we should all be eating three parts insoluble fiber to one part soluble fiber. So that being natural laxative uh, to, to soluble fiber that keeps us full. And then, uh, so once you have fed your, your gut bacteria, that indigestible fiber, that's hopefully in all the food that you eat, uh, they then have the energy to create enzymes um, that break down the food into its nourishing parts and send it to the organs around the body. Because we all have different strains of bacteria, we'll also create different types of enzymes. And with the different enzymes, you can break down different foods. So um, though we're all different, uh, the feed needs to be the same. How the feed unfolds is, is going to be different. And certainly people that are on a high fiber diet versus a low fiber diet are going to be a lot healthier because the more fiber you feed yourself, the more ability you're giving your body to be healthier. And so with fermentation as a process, uh, that is essentially just 
making food nourishing. Without fermenting a food, you basically ingest calories. So through fermentation, you use some sort of a starter culture, whether you're making a drink or a food substance. Um, and that culture has lactic acid bacteria in it and yeasts. Um, and those lactic acid bacteria and yeasts basically uh, reduce the pH of the solution that the food is in. Um, and then the food can be split into its individual nourishing parts, zinc, iron, magnesium, calcium. But without that culture starter, they don't. The bond stays. And so all the nourishment is locked in as one. Um, culture starters basically unbind the nutrients from one another, allowing you to assimilate them into your body. And so sprouting, soaking, fermentation, they all pretty much do the same thing. They all unbind uh, nourishment from others. And without putting your food through a process like that, uh, you really are just ingesting calories. And that's when really people describe things like slow digestion, sluggish digestion. Oh, I've got a really poor metabolism. Yes, you do. Because number one, you don't have the, the mineral that's essential for a healthy metabolism in you because it's been locked up with all this other stuff. And then number two, yeah, you're malnourished because you're not assimilating any nourishment. And so people will often come to me and they'll be like, I'm really healthy. I eat porridge for breakfast. I have rye vita with hummus for lunch. And then I have, you know, potatoes with carrots and other veg for dinner. And I'm like, okay, well, number one, you're not soaking your oats. So you're just ingesting calories there and lots of soluble fiber, which is making you go, like bunged up. And then rye vita, I mean, that's pure shite. <laughs> Uh, like that is just unfermented commercial grain right there again pure calorie and then people have a weird habit of peeling their vegetables right. uh, so they're peeling off all the laxative so all the insoluble fibers on the skin of your fruits and vegetables it's on the brands of your nuts and seeds and so of course you're getting constipated because you're just reducing your your insoluble fiber uh, from that perfect equation of three to one to maybe one to one or, or nothing at all yeah, it's so interesting. People, I think, I feel like the phrase food is medicine goes around a lot, but it really feels like you're kind of taking that to the next level. And in particular, I think it's really interesting how um, a lot of, I think there's this common belief that uh, we just kind of need to go back to the way things were and and that would be better. And like, obviously there's a lot of truth to that, but at the same time, you're using, you know, a lot of modern science and research to um, yeah. make something that honestly probably didn't really exist in the past. Yeah, exactly. And and like to your point, in an ideal world, of course, we would go back to the past. But in the past, there was maybe 30 varieties of grasses per field that were mm. milled into a flower bag. It's very difficult to do that at scale and yield the same amount that we're yielding today. And so what we chose to do with the 16, 17 ingredients per loaf was manipulate what was happening in the field like we can do that in a mixing bowl so i think to your point let's use modern science to replicate what was happening then and that's what we're trying to do yeah we have spoken to a lot of people about the kind of myth versus reality in terms of how green ireland actually is and i know that you have said before that you believe that cheap food doesn't exist and so i'm wondering if you have any thoughts on the organic movement in Ireland or what the what the climate is like in that regard? 
a lot, I think everyone here is aware that a lot of education is needed to inspire change. I think fundamentally we live in a, in a, a farming country that is supported by government grants and aid. And so within that structure, as it currently is, it's difficult to uh, petition big farmers to, to get on board with regenerative agriculture and, and then certainly organic agriculture. But um, I think people are definitely conscious of going more community-based and local again. So I think again, it's just not something that's going to happen overnight. It's going to be, it's it's going to change very slowly. I think the amount of Aldi and little stores that are across Ireland right now is astonishingly bad. I think kind of outsourcing health to supermarkets is compounding many of the issues. I think going to a building that's meant to nourish you where you can buy paracetamol in one aisle and food in the next makes no sense to me at all. I think for me, I'm not necessarily uh, concerned about the word organic. I'm more concerned about like what is feasible and what's natural and what's going to be good for the community. And so for me, I think I just go into a relationship of trust with the farmers and suppliers that we use. I mean, most of them are organic accredited anyway, but for me, that's not really important uh, because taking wine, I guess, is the prime example wine can be farmed organically, but then as soon as it comes into the winery, you add loads of sulfites to it and you add chemicals and stabilizers and things like that. So I think uh, in Ireland, there's probably more of an interest in becoming regenerative than there is organic. I think the people interested in becoming organic are ones that are dependent on that word for their exports. That leads kind of into to ask how you source your ingredients and what sort of values are important to you when you're trying to figure out where you're going to get, uh, where you're going to get your ingredients from. I know you mentioned roller roller mills and how they sort of strip out all the nutrients. So how do you balance, you know, trying to find good nutrient rich ingredients with shortening supply chains and environmental challenges and, and all that? Yeah. So uh, for me, the holy grail would be to get to a place where most of our ingredients are farmed regeneratively in Ireland. Right now, that's not possible because our culture of tillage and things like that is kind of rebirthing itself. So uh, a lot of our grains come from Kilkenny and they're grown there organically and regeneratively. Um, And they also mill them on site. So everything's milled on a stone mill fresh for us. The teff comes in through Ethiopia um, and that gets milled again on a stone for us and then our seeds and nuts uh, they're brought into Ireland uh, by Linwoods who we've got a really good relationship with and we we trust how they mill their seeds and nuts there they do everything fresh for us so everything that we're using is either grown and stone milled in Ireland or grown and stone milled somewhere else and brought in but the most important thing is Everything is milled fresh for us. Uh, So the enzyme activity is intact. Um, And a lot of the time we're just bringing in the grains as well and milling ourselves. And then, for example, our eggs, uh, Brian just delivered there a half an hour ago. So our eggs are 50 cent an egg and they're regeneratively farmed in Galway. Our organic raw milk is from down the road from Sinead and MJ. 
and they only have a herd of like 13 cows. Our honey is made here in Westport. It's raw, it's local. The sea salt is harvested on Ackle Island. So yeah, I could go on. Like it, it's, it, it's, it's of the utmost importance to us. Yeah. Like we use cinnamon in our chia teff loaf to, to manage people's insulin levels. And, you know, that comes from Sri Lanka. But we, we have tight relationships with our suppliers to ensure that we're adhering to our values for sure. I was wondering for someone who can't get your bread and is really, really, is really interested in the health qualities. What are some ways that people can make changes to the way they bake at home? Obviously not everyone's going to be able to get the 17 ingredients and, you know, do the exact ratios that you use, but like, what are some small changes that people could make or start to incorporate into their own uh, baking practice to, to sort of achieve some of these results? So adding ground flaxseed to your recipe will be the biggest one. So flaxseed basically scrapes the colon clean. It's an incredible source of both soluble and insoluble fiber, but it's a it's a colon scraper. And, and the more you can get into your recipes, the better. So for me, that would be fundamental. And then, you know, like any whole grain recipe you can find online, whether that have buckwheat in it or, or wheat or whatever, you know, adding at least 10% flaxseed to that recipe and swapping something out and then just making sure to soak that overnight in the fats and the liquids that are that are in that recipe and then just getting it into a tin the next day and baking it the next day. Like it, it really is as simple as that. Awesome. Is it true that you're currently writing a cookbook? Yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's a, I, I'm trying to, my biggest thing with, I've been asked to write a book for many years and I've always hesitated because I think for me, a book, books for me have been a real like therapy blanket. So I'll often read memoirs by women as a way of kind of sitting down with a female figure that's uh, keeping me company. And so I guess this, it's going to be a cookbook, but it's, it's also being written as a comfort blanket to someone who's, who's going through something and can use food as a solution for that. That's great. Yeah, that sounds great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, guys. Um, I better jump back into the bakery and see what I have to handle there. (laughs) Sounds good. It was so great to talk to you. And thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Dyed Green is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at dyedgreen.com at heritageradionetwork.org.